0: Well, thank you for joining us once again right here on African Dialogue you're listening to Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance my name is Benjamin Mushatama. you'll be with me for the next hour right here on our frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to southern Africa on DSTV we're on channel 902 on uh, our website you can stream us live on www.channelafrica.co.za well today on our program we'll look at social entrepreneurship following the summit on uh, Pan-African Social uh, uh, Entrepreneurship that was hosted by the Gordon Institute of Business Science in Johannesburg. That's the Pan-African Social Entrepreneurship Summit, which took place uh, yesterday, which was hosted by the Gordon Institute of Business Science in Johannesburg, looking at uh, what is social entrepreneurship. But let's quickly move on to our news and get our update from Anne Musa.
3: In the headlines, Libyan lawmakers sat for signing UN-backed unity deal. Mixed reactions to President Jacob Zuma's decision to pay back some of the money spent on the security upgrades at his home in Nkandla and a Saudi court commuter Palestinian poet's death sentence. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. Libya's unrecognized Islamist-backed parliament has dismissed 10 lawmakers who signed a UN-brokered deal to set up a national unity government. First deputy head of the Tripoli-based General National Congress, Awad Mohammed Abdul-Sadiq, at a news conference said that the GNC sacked some of the members who signed the December agreement in Morocco. A national unity government headed by businessman Faiz al sarraj and comprising 32 ministers was formed last month but was rejected by the recognised parliament. The International Criminal Court in The Hague says it will deliver It's verdict next month in the long-running trial of former Congolese Vice President Jean-Pierre Bemba. Bemba is being accused of militia war crimes in the Central African Republic over 14 years ago. His trial before three judges was opened on the 22nd of November in 2010 and ended in late 2014. He has since been waiting for a verdict. South African opposition parties have mixed reactions to President Jacob Zuma's decision to pay back some of the money spent on the security upgrades at his home in Nkandla. The economic freedom fighter says it's considering the president's out-of-court settlement on the Nkandla saga. Meanwhile, IFP in Parliament says the settlement is a smokescreen to make sure that the state of the nation address runs smoothly. Zuma's proposed that the Constitutional Court should order Finance Minister Praveen Gordon and the Auditor General to determine how much he's liable to pay. IFP Chief Warp Narendra Singh says President Zuma should have his day in court.
4: Taxpayers' money have been spent on
2: you know committees having sat for weeks on ends, uh, late into the night. Having had visits, we would be very happy to accept whatever ruling the Constitutional Court makes on this matter, particularly on the issue of remedial action and the powers of the public protector.
3: Political analyst Amadota Fikeni has described President Jacob Zuma's proposal on the Incandla repayment as a calculated move. Fikeni says the proposal has raised fundamental issues.
5: Looking at the looming court case, particularly the Constitutional Court, which is the Penultimate court in the land, but also the opening of parliament where disruptions based on the demands for him to pay the money were possible. And also local government elections, I'm sure in the quarters of the ANC, or even on the side, there might have been some council to say, it's better to close this particular matter.
3: And finally, a Saudi court has commuted the death sentence of a Palestinian poet on charges of abandoning his Muslim faith to eight years in jail and 800 lashes. Ashraf Fayad was detained by the country's religious police in 2013. He was re-arrested and tried in early 2014. According to the new ruling, the court has decided to go back on the previous death sentence. Saudi Arabia's Justice Ministry was not immediately available for comment. Recapping the top stories, Libyan lawmakers sacked for signing the UN-backed unity deal. Mixed reactions to President Jacob Zuma's decision to pay back some of the money spent on the security upgrades at his home in Nkandla. And a sound court commutes a Palestinian poet's death sentence.
0: Well, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance right here on uh, DSTV Channel 902. And if you're listening to us on our shortwave services on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Remember, you can also stream us live every day from 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock at uh, our website. That's www.channelafrica.co.za That's www.channelafrica.co.za Now, social Entrepreneurship is the topic that we're speaking about today. Seems to be a growing trend, especially in the business sector. Attendees at the Pan-African Social Entrepreneurship Summit that was held at the Gordon Institute of Business Science uh, that was organized by Mail and Guardian as well, got the opportunity to spend a day with leading thinkers in the social enterprise field. Entrepreneurs were given network opportunities and education on how to be a successful entrepreneur and how to get funding. Today, I want to unpack this phenomenon called Social Entrepreneurship and also really look at what does it mean for the African continent. Now, we have some guests joining us to look at this subject. We have Andy Hatfield, who's joining us as the CEO of For Good. He's in our studios. And we've got Karen Gridge, who is a Senior Programs Manager at the Gordon Institute of Business Science. Also on the line, we've got Tendai Mashingaize, who is a team leader at the Muzinda Hub. And uh, he is uh, part of a project that's taking place in Zimbabwe. Karen, thank you for joining us on the line. Let's start with this uh, particular uh, uh, event that took place, the Pan-African Social Entrepreneurship Summit. What was that all about?
6: Morning, Ben. Um, yesterday, and really driven by the Mail and Guardian and Gibbs, I head up our network for social entrepreneurs. We held a session to really unpack what social entrepreneurship is, not just in the South African context, because there have been lots of conversations in SA, but really to start understanding what the continental perspective is and to share experiences. So social entrepreneurs are this wonderful new breed of what I'm starting to call super entrepreneurs. They are people who spot opportunity in their communities, in the world around them. And they set up organizations that have social good as their goal. So their primary mission is to really achieve a change that will improve the lives and livelihoods of others. But what really distinguishes this from our classic charity models is that social enterprises um, make a profit. And this culturally is often quite complicated for us because we always think that if we're doing good, there's this, you know, we're driven by virtue and and we shouldn't be paid for it. But Mm. when we really look at what makes um, social change sustainable, it's the fact that there's um, a sustainable income stream that really sits behind it so that the organization can grow, so that there's stability and that there's predictability. So Mm. our social entrepreneurs are this wonderful new breed of people who not only see opportunity all around them, so in rural areas, in in townships, in peri-urban areas. It, wherever big business tends not to see opportunity because it's too hard to go there, our social entrepreneurs are doing great work because they're Mm. seeing opportunity through a different lens. But most importantly, they're making a profit. And because of this, they're able to achieve substantial change in the places where they work.
0: Well, we'll come back to the differences uh, between a normal business and a social entrepreneur type of business makeup. Andy, thank you for joining us. Coming into our studios, we really appreciate you coming through. Tell us a little bit about your company, For Good. Uh, We just got an explanation what uh, a social entrepreneur business, uh, the Model what it looks like, but tell us a little bit about what you get up to with your business.
7: Not a problem. And, and how's it to Karen and Tendai? It's interesting that the three of us were in the same room yesterday at the social <laughs> the social entrepreneurship summit. Now sure. we're talking about it on radio. Uh, yes, yeah, so good, is quite interesting. I mean, we're we're a very classic social enterprise. Um, I was kind of I was a very capitalistic entrepreneur <laughs> prior to this. What happened, man? Oh, <laughs> well, you'll tell us your story. Sure, so go ahead. Well, well, we can tell the story. <laughs> and I think I'm I'm still a capitalistic entrepreneur. Um, and I really like what Karen said about just viewing the world through a through a different lens. So. For good, one of the nice ways I like to explain it is we're like online dating for the social sector. Okay. We try and connect people to causes because one of the biggest problems uh, in an active democracy like ours is that there's this groundswell of people that want to give back. They want to get involved in their country. They realize we can't sit back and let the government do everything. We have to. We have to do something ourselves. But they don't know where to start. They don't know where to go. And that's what we do. We connect people to causes. What's more interesting is from a from a social entrepreneurship point of view, we have a fairly solid business model behind that, which Which is we allow big corporates within South Africa to white label our platform and use it as a piece of software basically to run their employee volunteering programs. That's how we make money. Uh, it's also how we can really start to scale. And We, we had some discussions about scale yesterday. Mm-hmm. Is that if, if you imagine, it's quite hard to get you know, 50,000 South Africans to do something. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to t- get 10 corporates with 30,000 staff each yeah, yeah. to do something. Mm-hmm. So there's some really powerful forces at work here, and, mm-hmm. and that's where we we're trying to play.
0: Well, very interesting indeed. Let's move on to Tendai, who's also on the line, team leader of Muzinda Hub, and uh, he's from uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, Tendai, thank you for joining us. What is Muzinda Hub?
4: Uh, Thanks a lot for having me. So Muzinder Hub is a digital skills school, if I put it across like that, um, where we get uh, unemployed uh, Zimbabwean graduates, and we train them for free to code. Um, We need to create apps and websites or any other custom-made software. And then uh, once we train them, we turn them into uh, freelance entrepreneurs. So meaning uh, they can set up their own little business at our hub premises and use our you know, uh, hardware and software and our bandwidth to start running their own little businesses serving the Zimbabwe community. Some have already started serving people hmm. as far as Europe and the USA. And um, I think where the social entrepreneurship kicks in is in the fact that we actually have no criteria in terms of recruiting um, who would be a part of it. Wow. Uh, we've got guys who six months ago did not know how to create an app, and now they are able to create an app and make money from it. And the training is absolutely free. And then how Mozinda makes money is that from every job that the entrepreneur then charges on to mm. his client, we take a percentage of it, and that's how Muzinda, you know becomes sustainable and also makes uh, some profit.
0: Well, Tendai, I think I'm going to move to Zimbabwe because IT is the way to go, and I'll just get free lessons from you. (laughs) But fantastic work model there. But let me move this back to you, Karen. Uh, Just before we go to our break, in in terms of uh, the nature of uh, social entrepreneurship, is it a much explored area? Do people see this as a form of business that's lucrative, especially when we look at small, medium enterprises? I see a lot of potential of how you can start a small, medium enterprises using this kind of Model.
6: That it depends what you mean by lucrative, mm. and I think this is what's so challenging about the social entrepreneurship model, and it's lovely listening to the guys again because we had this wonderful conversation yesterday about how people think social entrepreneurs are slightly crazy because they're pushing the frontiers of thinking rather than sitting in the mainstream. So the mainstream would consider lucrative to be pure profit, but and we know since the financial crisis of 2008 and the awful events at Marikana that we can't keep chasing pure profit. It's mm. not a viable um, long-term approach to ensuring we achieve both social and economic change in our country and countries across the world. And so when we look at lucrative, I think the discussion is really more about how do we achieve growth at different levels of value and what is value. And, mm. and more and more what we're seeing is that value is more than just financial. The value that an organization brings into society is extremely social as well and really should have a progressive social mandate. And so that's where social entrepreneurs play. So is it lucrative? Absolutely. Are you going to drive around in a Ferrari? No. (laughs) Would you want to? No, because that's not what's driving you. But really when it comes to being an integrated member and active citizen um, and a business leader, and, 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 it really is a very holistic approach to business leadership.
0: Well, today we're speaking about business uh, and uh, our main theme is social entrepreneurship. The Pan-African Social Entrepreneurship was hosted by the Gordon Institute of Business Science alongside Mail and Guardian. Really to look at uh, how do we look at uh, social entrepreneurship from an African perspective? What are your thoughts around this issue? Do you think that we can have businesses that are really based on social issues on the ground? Give us your thoughts. SMS us on plus two seven eight two three three two five nine. That's plus two, seven, eight, two, three, three, two, five, nine, zero, five. Or you can interact with us on our uh, Twitter handle at Channel Africa one. Or you can use our at African dialogue handle at African dialogue. We want to hear your views. It's 1115. Let's move on and get a quick break. And then when we come back, I want us to explore the issue of scale training and also measuring mechanisms. And when you look at social entrepreneurship, how do we define success? Is it difficult to actually pin down what uh, a successful social entrepreneur? Entrepreneurial business looks like. Let's look at those issues after this break.
1: Would like to
8: get to know you, our listener. So we are asking you to tell us the country you're in and how you listen to the station. Is it via shortwave, internet or satellite? And what do you enjoy listening to? You can SMS us at plus two seven eight two double three two five nine oh five or email us. It's at info at channelafrica.org. You can also tell us via Facebook or tweet us on the handle at numerical one Or write to us at the address, P.O. Box, 91313 Auckland Park, Johannesburg, 2006 Republic of South Africa. We look forward to hearing from you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
0: Well, uh, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. An interesting subject today. We're looking at the Pan-African Social Entrepreneurship Summit, which was taking place right here in Johannesburg, organized by the Gordon Institute of Business Science. They were partnering up with the local uh, newspaper here in South Africa, the Mail and Garden, really looking at the issue of uh, social entrepreneurship from an African context. And that's when you speak Africa. Hey, Channel Africa, we want to get into it. And uh, so we've got Karen uh, Cridge, who is the senior programs manager at the Gordon Institute of uh, Business Science? We've got Tendai Mashingaidze, who is a team leader at Muzinda Hub, and he is uh, based in Zimbabwe. Andy Harfield joins us in studio. He's the CEO for For Good, and uh, I wanted to look at the issue of uh, the the issue of definitions. I think that's how we can look at this part of our program, uh, take the conversation there. And Andy, we were talking about that particular issue that. It's difficult to really look at social entrepreneurship in terms of success because you have different values, different um, objectives, and uh, your view of success is not just from a capitalistic perspective. You're looking at things in a a broader sense. Your objectives are so much broader than just a simple business, isn't it?
7: Yeah, I I think the The objectives are broader. um, and. uh, again it's this lens thing so i was using the metaphor of if you try and explain the difference between a social entrepreneur and an entrepreneur The entrepreneur goes and says right i want to make a million bucks and i don't know i don't care how i make it i'm just going to do it because that's going to make me rich and that's what i'm driven by mm. social entrepreneur might say okay um i want to feel a little bit about myself i mm. might want to change some lives so sure. what if i could make 700,000 rand but i could change lives at the same time uh, and that's okay you know, it's not about discounting ourselves because we were virtuous. That was a, a topic, that, <laughs> the topic that came up. You know, why are people in the nonprofit industry paid less? Mm. I mean, that's rubbish if you think about it. Mm. Um, it's just about measuring success in, in, in slightly different ways.
0: Mm. Let, let me
7: bring in uh, Neil
0: Robinson, who's also on our lines. He's the CEO of Relate Bracelets. Uh, Neil, thank you for joining us as well on our program. Yes, sure. Hi, good morning. Cool. Uh, Now, let's look at your business, and uh, maybe you can come into this conversation. Tell us a little bit about what you do, and then also, let's answer that question that I'm asking right now about how you, as a social entrepreneur, define the issue of success. How do you measure it? Yes, sure. Uh, Thanks
2: for having me on. I I think, as your previous guest says, I, I completely agree with what the guys are saying there's a different metric but I think it is about making money. You have to make money to get back. And I think it's looking at value in a different way and measuring how you're impacting people's lives on the ground. So it's all good and well talking, talking, talking. We've got a very simple model of we're selling a handmade product which is made in the county's. We we have a partnership with a a company called The Come the Buntu, and we work in about 19 seniors' clubs, and we make bracelets, and we sell them in retail stores, and we make money, and we give those bits of money back to great organizations like NPO's around South Africa and the world, as well as our partners with The Come and we pay our goggles or grannies um, a salary out of the making of the beads. Mm. And I think if you make things simple for people, if you get the public involved, you can get involved in something which is transparent, and it's accountable, most importantly accountable and impactful. So what are you doing with lives? How many impact you know, how many lives you're impacting? And we try to impact between three fifty and four hundred goggles every single day wow. supplementing their pensions which are very miserly hmm. And then we also have a program whereby we we skill matriculants that have come from very, very sort of challenging areas and we give them a salary and we, we skill them up at the same time. So could be earning three and a half to four thousand a month with us plus they're getting their skills paid for while they're busy working in our offices and we, we probably employ about between 25 and 50 of them and that are permanently employed with Relate and you know, the project works because it's very simply defined and it has a very, very clear strategic mm-hmm. goal which mm-hmm. is to try to impact as many lives as possible and you know today we've managed to to work with Probably about 82 different NPO's around the world as partners and we've given away we've raised close to 34 million rand in five years mm. and that and that for me is is massively important mm. and i agree with Andy and, and what Colin was saying earlier really about you, you can't disenfranchise people because they want to work in the NPO sector you know you're competing against full profits and i spent 23 years in full profits so i know what it's like I want to get the best people to come work in the sector because if you get the best people, you make bigger impacts. It's mm. not about saving every last dime and cent. It's about trying try to change the world
1: mm.
2: through doing great projects and making big impacts on the ground.
0: Mm. Well let me move that to you Tendai And ask the very same question about uh, Your measuring mechanisms Uh, Neil and Andy Are speaking about the people centric Nature of uh, social Entrepreneurship Uh, your thoughts On on how you measure your own success
4: Yeah I think uh, We try to You know put some KPIs Around um, you know Whether our short term objectives Are aligned with our you know um, long-term vision. And our long-term vision is to create jobs in Zim. We've got about it. 90% formal unemployment rates, of which 50% of these are the youth, between the ages of uh, 18 and 40. And uh, basically, you know, our success is having been able to successfully create a job or an entrepreneurial opportunity for them. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. how we would measure our success Um, to pace ourselves against, you know, how we're tracking against our vision. But again, another measure that we use for our success is, are we doing what we are doing sustainably? Okay. So there's got to be a sense of, we don't give people false hope. If I come into the Zimbabwean market and give people this great uh, sense of hope that I will give you an ability to be able to create apps, and uh, six months down the line, I don't have money to fund that initiative. And I wouldn't have been successful. So mm. we look at two key things. Firstly, are we able to achieve the goal of creating jobs? Then secondly, are we creating those jobs mm. sustainably? And that's how we measure the success. Because we don't want Malinda to be, you know, something that is just for the short term. We want it to be something that's there for the long term. We don't really want it to be a Zimbabwe thing. Work mm. in Zambia. Why not in Zambia? Why not in Namibia? Why not in Liberia?
0: I'm also wanting to look at another area of this and let me come to you Karen from the Gordon Institute of Business Science in looking at what is the difference between uh, a social entrepreneur type of business and the one that is just a normal type of business because someone might say Hey, a lot of people that might be saying they're social entrepreneurs but they're just capitalists just as like anybody else and uh, they might just be using these social causes as a way of enriching themselves so how do you know the real authentic intention of a social entrepreneur. I think that's the tricky part because then we come into the area of morality and philosophy maybe.
6: It's actually funny you ask this because I was having a discussion with a colleague just before Um, this phone call to really talk about the ethics and the morality around uh, social entrepreneurship it's hard because there's no fixed definition i mean we're looking at people who have a focus on social and economic change and when we look at our um, unemployment statistics i know we got a downgrade by the world bank yesterday Mm. in terms of our economic outlook um it's complete common sense to me that we have to focus on social and economic change in one go um, and that we can't keep focusing on the financial model as as being solely responsible to uplift an entire country. Um, but but what is it? And if we don't know what it is, how do we know how it works? Mm. And the. We actually have commissioned and are busy conducting the first national mapping study of social enterprises across the country, which will really give us insight into what social entrepreneurship looks like in South Africa. We've got very clear ideas as to what it plays out as in the U.S. and the U.K. and Western Europe. But in emerging market economies, and as particularly in South Africa, where the inequality divides are so diverse and, and the contrasts are so huge, mm. um, it's a very interesting space. So to answer your question, I think there are two key things that I always look for. And the first is intention. When you set up your social enterprise, are you intending to make pockets of money and buy yourself a Ferrari? Or is your intention to achieve a change within a community that you're connected to? Um, And the second one is what happens to that money? So we could argue that a Discovery Health, as an example, um, has a social... Achieves social good, you know, it, it makes people healthier. Yeah. But is it a social enterprise? Absolutely not. It's listed on our stock exchange, it makes pots of money. Uh, I do believe Adrian Gore's got several helicopters. So where that money goes is really important. And Andy, I think, and I was struggling to hear Tendai, but Andy was talking about it earlier. The money goes back into the business. And this is where social enterprises are really interesting because there's a very strong connectivity between impact and income. So if you're achieving oh, your, inca- your impact, and this links to your question around measurement, if people want your services or if they fi- find that your product is useful, they will purchase it at the cost that you have set. That's how we see value. Um, and what you do with that money, with that income, is to reinvest it to achieve greater impact. So you've got this perfect virtuous circle between impact and income. People don't want your services. They won't buy it, and therefore you won't have a social enterprise. So that's where the capitalist model really works in the social entrepreneurial space. Hmm. And just one last thing is that what's really critical about social enterprise is it shifts those power dynamics. So, in a charitable model, there's, there's often benevolence, and it's quite patronising. I'm here to help you, poorer person mm, who's mm, lesser than mm. I am. That's very much the rhetoric around charity. When we look at social entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurs themselves, there's extraordinary equality because it's a very equalising environment. People, you're working with people to deliver something that they need and that they want. And if that dynamic isn't there, your social enterprise won't work.
7: Mm. Uh, Andy, you, you want to say something? Yeah, I, look, I think it's a it's a fascinating topic, and maybe it's a little controversial. But I, I half agree with Karen, and I and I half disagree. Mm. Um, so if you look at why social entrepreneurship has come up, it, like if you boil it down to its simplest thing. Capitalism is is broken. I, I think we're starting to realise that now. The the wealth gap not only, not only in this country but in the world is just sure. insane, mm-hmm. you know. Where the top one percent of people own the vast majority of the world. That's the pitchforks are gonna come out and, <laughs> and the people they're not gonna take it anymore. On the other hand Hopefully not. <laughs> on the other hand, and, and maybe this is controversial to say, but um, you know, we think charity is a bit broken as well Sure. So without charity, charity, we would be nowhere um, It's provided some absolutely symptomatic and necessary relief Especially in our country But we still have a lot of the problems that charity is trying to solve So it's not working yeah. And I think social entrepreneurship fits somewhere in the middle And where I half disagree with, with Karen Is that I don't think we've quite decided You know, it's not about Ferraris I don't think we've quite decided You know, can you be rich and a social entrepreneur? Well, why not? Yes, some money has to get invested back into the company, but pure capitalists invest lots of money back into their companies. Mm. Um, And I I think that's this gray line that we're we're all trying to figure out. Could you see in the future a social enterprise listed on the stock exchange? Why not? Well, interesting questions. Maybe I'm going to
0: take those to both uh, Neil and to Tendai. Maybe they can answer these particular questions. How big can you go? And I think that's the main question that Andy is asking there. Hey, we want to hear from your thoughts. Give us uh, your thoughts. Do you think social entrepreneurship is a realistic type of business on the continent of Africa? Do you think that it's one that is required? Give us your thoughts on our Twitter handle, at Africa one or at African Dialogue. At African Dialogue, that's our Twitter handle we've got both of those twitter handles where you can interact us And remember you are listening to channel africa this is african dialogue with me benjamin moshatama stay tuned in we're going to continue after this break
5: i am an african i owe my being to the hills and the valleys the mountains and the glades the rivers the deserts the trees the flowers the seas and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. My body has frozen in our frosts and in our latter-day snows. It has thawed in the warmth of our sunshine and melted in the heat of the midday sun. The crack and the rumble of the summer thunders, lashed by startling lightning, have been a cause both of trembling and of hope. The fragrances of nature have been as pleasant to us as the sight of the wild blooms of the citizens of the felt. The dramatic shapes of the Dragon's back, the soil-colored waters of the Likwa, Iqili, Notuge, and the sands of the Kharahat have all been panels of the set on the natural stage on which we act out the foolish deeds of the theater of the day.
0: You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Moshatama. Every day from Monday to Thursday, we bring some of the biggest topics on the continent. Today, we're looking at business, social entrepreneurship. There was the Pan-African Social Entrepreneurship taking place yesterday. That's the summit. It was organized by the Gordon Institute of Business Science and the Mail and Guardian. Now, we want to look at some of the conversations that came up. and The conversation is becoming very interesting, especially now when we're speaking about the ethics and the morality of this type of uh, social entrepreneurship issue. Uh, Tendai, your thoughts around some of uh, the views expressed by both uh, Andy and uh, Karen in terms of how large can you go and how much can you make a profit as an owner in uh, uh, a social entrepreneurial business?
4: Yeah, I think personally for me, I think, I don't know, for a social entrepreneur, I think the sky is really the limit in terms of what you can do. I'd like to define social entrepreneurship slightly differently and say I view a social entrepreneur as someone who is personally taking upon themselves the need to satisfy a social, um, a social um, gap that would have otherwise been satisfied or rather closed by, for instance, the government.
7: Hmm. And I
4: want to give an example of what I feel is a social enterprise that has grown beyond what we think what we know as the taxi industry here in South Africa. You know, the taxis that are ranking mm, mm. at uh, Bree Street, sure, in sure. Johannesburg. They should not be doing that, right? Because that, that is public transport. It should be provided for by the government, right? But then there was a problem in the sense that not all routes were covered and not all uh, townships or informal settlements were recognized for public transport purposes. So people took it upon themselves to make sure that they provide for it. That's social entrepreneurship exists. It's someone seeing a social need and moving there pretty quickly. I give you another example: um, what we know as the stock fell, you know, in the township, mm, uh, mm. the um, informal banking society. That's mm. an industry that is worth millions of rand. Okay. Where that kind of money is pulled together, people don't have bank accounts. But it's a form of banking system, and it's someone who socially thought, you know, these people got this money under their mattresses, and they got this money, you know, stored in places where it's not gaining any interest. What if I create a system whereby I can pull everything together? So for me, I think social entrepreneurship, you know, it can be quite big. The only danger for it is that you can't exclude capitalism from it, because according to economics, the moment see that this thing is profitable, it's more than likely that not only social entrepreneurs will be interested, but anyone who's a capitalist would also like to move into that space.
0: Let me bring you in, Neil. Your thoughts around uh, the morality issue. You work with the uh, the Magogos in the community, and I'm sure it's a sensitive issue within communities. And some maybe community members I have asked you before: Are you exploiting our mothers? Are you exploiting our grannies? How do you gauge your own morality working with poor communities? <laughs>
2: Listen, I, I think Karen made a very interesting point early on, and I, I kind of agree with both her and Andy's comments. Intention is absolutely where it is, and transparency, where does the money go? And I think for me, the Ferrari scenario, should you should you earn one? Should you earn five holiday houses or not? You know where is that morality and that ethical sort of principle line? For me, as long as you're stating what your goals are, how you're doing it, and why you're doing it, and you operate publicly, in other words, your, your books are open for people to see, if people decide that they're going to support this person or this company or this product, despite the fact that they own five Ferraris, if it's something which is putting good back into the community, if it's making good impact, why not? Why should social entrepreneurs be punished because of this morality... Um, ethical question of the haves and the have nots. You know, our goal to relate was when Lauren Gillis set up this company, you know, seven, eight years ago, we wanted to change that divide between the haves and the have nots, bridge the gap because it's you know, it's it's fundamentally wrong on so many levels to mm-hmm. have sixty one people, you know, earning sort of most of the wealth in the world. And you've got countries that are not getting clean drinking water, sanitation. Poverty levels are ridiculously high, so you, there is that moral thing about Ferrari, non-Ferrari. But again, then you're not going to get the best people to work in non-profit if you don't offer something for them to actually achieve and to strive for. There's a great TED talk by Dan Pilato. and um, he talks about why the charity model is broken. And I think we 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 try to traverse this sort of social capitalism, mm. I suppose, thinking around. You, know, you need to make money to be sustainable because if you're not, there's so many good NGOs in this country that close all the time because corporate decide know our donations going somewhere else next year so they don't get the money. If you don't have a sustainable model, you're doomed to fail. Hmm. But on the other hand, if you're buying five Ferraris, you know, yes, you're going to be questioned you know, morally,
1: hmm.
2: but if you're putting 50 million rand into poorer townships or areas where people really need it, mm. then why shouldn't you have five hours on top of that? Mm. No, I, I don't have a problem with that. As long as you're saying, so the intention question, what is your intention, and are you being completely transparent as to where your money is going? So mm. tell people, like public companies have to, disclose your books, disclose what you're doing from a sustainability point of view, from a, a CSI environmental point of view. Make that Make that the rule. So in other words, like public companies have to report so should social enterprises, then then there's no issue. Then people are disclosing and people can support them or not. I know for a fact we wouldn't do as well as we do if it was a for profit company. Sure, so sure. because they would not buy the product because why buy a bracelet when you've got fifty five thousand other bracelets to buy from? You know, what makes ours different? Well, it's simple it's going to get calls we're very open about where the money goes and we're very 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 sticky mm. about you know who we partner with
7: mm. and do
0: you want to say something?
7: yeah and no, I'm so glad uh, that you brought up that Dan Pallotta talk because <laughs> funny enough uh, and everyone should go and, go and Google him now the, the talk I think is called uh, how we think about charity is dead wrong. Mm. And that was pretty much the the tipping point for me getting involved with For Good and, and g- becoming a social entrepreneur mm. from a purely capitalistic one before. <laughs> um, and just some of the lessons in that talk are, are amazing. And he talks about these two two rule books and how unfair it is that non-profits have to play by one set of rules and, and for-profits have to play by another set of rules. And kind of his three, three big lessons are around remuneration. So why is it okay to make millions squeezing customers for service? levels, uh, squeezing custos- customers for margins, but it's not okay to make millions helping people. Mm. Uh, why can Disney make a $200 million movie and it flops and no one blinks an eye, mm. but someone spends 200 million rand on a non-profit and it flops and suddenly you're up in front of Tule Manoncelo? And, <laughs> <laughs> and then I think the last one, and this is important, and again, one of the reasons we're structured as a for-profit is that non-profits don't have the ability to attract risk capital. Growth capital. They have the ability to attract donors and therefore are dependent on donors. Social entrepreneurs, that whole window of investment now opens up. Impact investment, Mm. active philanthropy, Mm -hmm. uh, while not closing down the the idea of active grant giving and things Mm -hmm. like that, but this ability to attract risk capital by offering a return to shareholders – while you are trying to make the world a better place. That's the exciting space.
0: Well, that's interesting. Karen, uh, very much different opinions and views that have come from our various guests, and it's interesting. And it brings me to ask this particular question about the definition of uh, social entrepreneurship. Should we keep it open? Should we not try to pin it down and just explore how far it can actually go?
6: Well, I think... <laughs> <laughs> I want to invite Andy and Tendai to come on our program where we explore just this because I would disagree totally with Tendai on the taxi example yeah. and I disagree with Andy on why can't I list my social enterprise. <laughs> and I think that there's, there's again, it's both where is the money going and that connection between impact and income. And as soon as you, you list, your income is going out. You, you can't track where it's going. It's certainly not going back into impact. And that's the problem that we have with the, you know, the example of a discovery health. Um, this is an open-ended conversation and what's really lovely in the, in the South African context and what was really came out of the session yesterday in the continental context, it's an open conversation for all of us. What we know is that there's an extraordinary need and we get stumped by the statistics daily um, and that was a common theme, but really there is this extraordinary intention that people have and a natural instinct that people have to see opportunity in their communities but to really pursue that in a way that it, that is financially sustainable. It's very much what we talk about on the Social Entrepreneurship Program, which we run here at Gibbs, and that was started by Jill Marcus in 2009. So it's got a really lovely pedigree to it, and increasingly we're seeing a, a global audience or, or students coming from Haiti, America, the U.S., from SADC, really coming to the program because South Africa's got this wonderful um, ability to host these kind of conversations and to really explore the nitty-gritty issues. Whenever you start talking about something in the social the development sector, you're naturally dealing with blurred lines. Mm. So we never look for a you know, very specific one plus one equals two definition. But what we do look for is a spectrum of understanding, which I think has come through in the conversation today from examples from the taxi industry to listed companies. All of these examples will sit on a spectrum of self-interest versus um, social interest and profit versus not for profit. And where organizations sit on that spectrum is really important. And what the conversation in social entrepreneurship does is it really encourages business to be driven more by values and social values. And it really encourages on the other side of that spectrum civil society organizations to start looking at at Mm. more at business practice to keep them going. And in the middle, that these wonderful social enterprises that are really living and practicing this very murky, very blurred world.
0: Hmm. Tendai, let me come to you. Uh, Intention. We've been speaking about intention, intention, intention. And that view that's coming from Karen brings me to this particular point that intention maybe (laughs) is also interpreted differently by various uh, social entrepreneurs themselves, especially coming from your examples because you cited, you actually opened the, the spectrum. And shouldn't we try to limit what the intention should be, that it's actually to uplift communities and not just mainly for profit making or would that actually create too many limitations? Tenda, are you there? I think we've lost Tendai, but let me bring that question to you, uh, Neil. Uh, What do you think about... uh, Uh, I'm
7: here. Can you hear
4: me?
0: Sure. Is that Tendai? Is that Neil? Yeah, it is Tendai. Oh, Tendaya, I was just asking about... The, okay, let me wrap it up with you, uh, Tendai, because I only have a minute left. But uh, scrutinizing the issue of intention, what is the intention of a social entrepreneur? Do you think we should rather pin down what the intention should be to uplift communities uh, rather than opening it up as you've opened up the spectrum to looking at taxis and looking at various forms of uh, uh, services that are offered to the community? Should we not pin down the intentions of a social entrepreneur as a definition itself?
4: Um, I think it would be very difficult yeah. to pin it down because for me the key word there would be the entrepreneur word. Ah. And you know, if I were to look at entrepreneur alone, to me it's uh, someone who's bought an opportunity that they can make money from. However, the difference between the mainstream entrepreneur and the one we refer to as a social entrepreneur is that the opportunity that that person is seeing is an opportunity that ultimately results in good for those who may not have been able to access that good. So um, coming back into the taxi example, which, uh, which uh, uh, my colleagues are um, you know, saying maybe slightly out, <laughs> I truly think that when the taxi industry started, it was out of let us help people be able to commute mm.
3: you know,
4: and do it profitably. Uh, sort of people walking, so that for me was a social entrepreneurship venture. Now we don't clearly see it because there's now regular, there's a lot of regulation, and you know uh, taxis are not the best drivers around, which makes us question whether it is for good. But I think ultimately, if we were to take out that industry completely, we will notice that actually it is a social enterprise.
0: Mm, very differing views, but interesting conversation we're having today. It's eleven forty-five Central African Time. I have to wrap it up. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to Karen Creech who is the senior programs manager from the Gordon Institute of Business Science. Also, wanna thank the Gordon Institute of Business Science for really opening this conversation up for us here at Channel Africa. Thank you as well to Tendai Mashingai, Mashingai Ze rather, who is the team leader at Muzinda Hub from Zimbabwe. Thank you to uh, Andy Hatfield. Coming into our studios, he's the CEO for For Good, and finally, but not least, thank you to the CEO of Relate Bracelets uh, that's Neil Robinson. Uh, let's quickly move on. We've got Asanda Matsaunyano who's standing by to give us our business news. Thank you.
1: Good morning. United States trade officials say the African Growth and Opportunity Act, known as AGOA, is unlikely to be renewed in its current format come 2025. U.S. Trade Representative for Africa, Florizel Lissa, and Assistant U.S. Trade Representative for Agricultural Affairs, Sharon Boma, Lysa, were speaking in Johannesburg on Tuesday. Lissa says discussions on amending AGOA have already started, and South Africa is among the benefiting countries. She has also expressed confidence in South Africa's ability to meet the March 15 deadline to resume U.S. chicken imports.
8: I am optimistic uh, that the March 15th deadline uh, will be met. It takes about a month for um, product to leave Atlanta and uh, get to uh, South Africa ports. There's huge interest on the part of South African importers
6: uh, to import our meat, and there's a lot of interest on the part of our industry to export. So.
1: The International Monetary Fund says it stands ready to help sub-Saharan Africa's oil exporters cope with plunging crude prices. Nigeria and Angola instead have turned to the World Bank for assistance. Facing an estimated $15 billion budget deficit in 2016, Nigeria's finance ministry has said it was looking to borrow as much as $5 billion. The World Bank is discussing potential financing for Nigeria and Angola through a program to support structural changes. Lesotho Central Bank's Monetary Policy Committee has increased interest rates by 50 basis points as inflation escalates. The bank's governor, Ritsedisitwe Matlanyane, says the current drought is exerting fueling inflation. The committee has also reduced target net international reserves due to the depreciation of the South African rand and Lesotho Loti against major currencies. Ntakwa reports. The Lesotho currency, the Luti, is
3: pegged to the RAND 1-1. to RAND depreciation to major currencies eases pressure on Lesotho to maintain high international reserves, and the MPC has decided to reduce them from 635 to 600 million US dollars. Lesotho also imports basic food and commodities from South Africa plus inflation. In an attempt to slow down spending, the central bank rate has been increased from 6.25 percent to six point seven
1: five percent kenya's shilling is little changed with limited corporate demand for u.s dollars matched by modest inflows of foreign exchange from tea exports and charities the shilling is quoted by commercial banks one trader says there are no big buyers oil futures have extended losses into a third session in asian trade u.s crude also known as west texas intermediate Fell two American cents to $29.86, having ended the previous session. A rebalancing between oil demand and supply will not come until mid 2017. Looking at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 1603 to the South African Rand, 1128 to the Botswana Pula, and 1120 to the Zambian Kwacha. It's also trading at 0.69 to the British Pound and 0.91 to the Euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,126 and platinum is at $856 an ounce, while the price of Brent crude oil is $32.53 a barrel. Your Channel Africa Economics News, I'm Asanda Matzaunyan.
0: Well, it's time for us uh, to quickly move on and get our sports.
8: Today, sports fans, I am Usiwudi Makura with your latest sports news at the Sawa. FIFA presidential candidate Tokyo Sihwale will seek continent-wide support in a final bid to revive his ailing election campaign at a meeting of African football leaders on Friday. Sihwale was grilled on Tuesday by high ranking officials of the South African Football Association who had earlier endorsed his candidacy in a race to replace Sablata. Safa wanted answers about Sihwale's election tactics and the unconvincing progress of his campaign after they had backed his bid for the presidency and helped him obtain the five nominations needed to stand for to replace Seblata. South Park President Dr. Danny Jordan.
9: Uh, he gave us an update, taking us through all of his activities or campaigns on the African continent, in Europe, uh, in the Middle East, uh, in relation to Asia, uh, and CONCACAF has also feedback from Oceania and from Comnibor. The executive also took into account that there is a, a CAF executive meeting uh, that, uh, in Kigali and that uh, we would like to appraise the CAF executive committee of the discussion uh, that happened today between Mr. Sakhwali and uh, the SAFA executive.
8: Tudan says they will only comment further after a meeting of officials of the Confederation of African Football in Kigali, Rwanda on Friday and what will be Sihwala's final opportunity to win support before the 26th of February election. Failure to land an endorsement from African football governing body is likely to store Sihwala's bid in its tracks.
9: Uh, We will then, uh, after that discussion in Kigali with the leadership of CAF, Also hear from them uh, what feedback (coughs) there is. Uh, We will then uh, meet with Mrs. Kwali who will also be in in Kigali, uh, to confirm the further development in terms of of the campaign. So I know you wanted a yes or a no tonight, uh, but the executive decided that the first port of call, as in the beginning that this is a campaign that must get the blessing and the support of of CAF. And our responsibility then is to give the report back first to the CAF executive uh, and discuss the matter there, and then we will issue uh, a statement after that.
8: On to local football news, Mamunoli Sundowns increased their lead at the top of the Absa premiership standings following a comfortable 3-0 win against Chippa United on Tuesday night. Sundowns opened the scoring just after six minutes when Leonardo Castro capitalized on a horror clearance by Apeke and slotted home from six yards out. Downs kept on pressing and eventually doubled their lead through Tegomudise before before Kamabiliat finished in style to make it 3-0. On the same night, Kaiser Chiefs defeated Golden Arrows by two goals to nil at the Moses Mapida Stadium in Durban in the KwaZulu-Natal province, while 2nd in Mpomalanga Black Aces played out a goalless draw with Jomo Cosmos at Odin Park in Elizabeth in the northwest uh, province. On to cricket news, with a disappointment of a 2-1 sunfoil test series lost behind him, South African Proteus captain AB de Villiers has placed renewed energy and focus on the upcoming five-match momentum one-day international series against England starting at the Mangawong Oval on Wednesday. AB de Villiers says it's a new challenge and a new series.
3: I'm, I'm very, very excited about our future. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed captaining The last two test matches, obviously the win helped a little bit. Um, It always helps for the confidence and um, feeling at home and feeling that you're on the right right track. So I'm very excited about what's, what's coming and what's ahead.
8: And finally, netball news. Malawi netball player Mwaii Kamwenda has been crowned Athlete of the Year by the International World Games Association. Kamwenda was one of the 18 international athletes nominated for the award from a cross-section of sports. She was crowned as a clear winner on an online, po- by the, rather by the online poll. Kamwenda who plays professionally for mainland in New Zealand was awarded player of the tournament at the netball World Cup in Sydney, Australia last year. Her win- was backed by impressive statistics of 91% shots on targets with 321 goals in 8 games and she was the only player to have scoring or to have scored 300 goals. Well, those are your sports teams at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
0: So that's how we wrap it up. Thank you for joining us. Why not share on African Dialogue and uh, you listening to Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa and the voice of the African Renaissance. Remember, African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time Interact with us, go to our Twitter handle at African Dialogue And you can find our updates there Find out what's happening on each program And you can interact us on our subjects on each day from Monday to Thursday From me, Benjamin Mushatama Until tomorrow, our last program for the week God bless Don't get it twisted, love is a beautiful thing It's
5: Donjazi again When When the Coco Master fall in love (laughs) You don't say what I don't pass, Kari?
0: Hey! I'm in love Are you in love? Mama, you don't make me fall
5: in love
0: I say love is blind like, no. though You see how today so You are the love of my life You are the love of my life Oh, I cannot deny you I wanna make you my wife Wanna make you my wife Oh, see I never thought That i will find someone like you That would catch up my heart And there's nothing I can do I used to brag to my friends That I'd always be a player But since I set my eyes on you Homo you done make me fall